0: Well, your Bible says that God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow, every tongue must confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you believe that? His name above every name. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Matthew's Gospel, please. The 28th chapter, one of the three synoptic Gospels, all in agreement. John's Gospel, of course, waited for approximately 28 years uh, after the death of Jesus, before that Gospel was penned. John the Revelator, of course, ended up 20 miles off the coast of Ephesus with nothing but uh, wild beasts for company. So Matthew is a first eyewitness of the ministry for three and a half years of Jesus of Nazareth where he walked about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, where he manifested a mastery over demons, over depravity, over disease, and at the tomb of Lazarus even over death himself. Now, Matthew begins his discourse in verse 1. The end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary for to see the sepulcher. And there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven. His countenance was like lightning. His raiment was white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and fell as dead men. Well, how would you respond if a 12-foot angel showed up in an earthquake? They fell as dead men. I like, what, I like what the angel says. And the angels answered and said unto the women, fear not, <laughs> for I know whom you seek, Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. Now Luke adds, He is not here. He is risen as he said. (laughs) Shove your neighbor and say, what he says, he'll do. Try the other neighbor, that one's asleep. Say, what he says, he will do. Now, if you're tired of talking to your neighbor, just lift both hands. And let everybody in heaven and earth know that you believe what God says God will do And then he gave him some evidence. He said come and see the place Where the Lord lay now, I want to share with you just in brevity a story that I recorded in the best-selling book called gone I wrote a book called The Cross, One Man, One Tree, One Friday. And then I followed it up with a sequel called Gone, One Man, One Tomb, One Sunday. These books are used throughout the nation as textbooks for college courses on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. They are not surface revelations there's a whole lot of digging. For instance, all over the internet during the past week I have seen pictures of the crucifixion of Jesus. I have yet to see one that is accurate. I have seen little pictures, you know, whatever they call those things they put on Instagram with words over them and three nails. It's understood by tradition, but not historical fact, that Jesus was crucified by crossing his feet over one on top of the other, thusly. Everybody that's seen Jesus crucified that way, raise your hand. The problem with it is in no way biblically accurate. There were not three nails, there were four nails. We know this, because of the only architectural evidence ever found, and it was not found until 1969, that any person had ever been crucified by hanging on a tree, a cross, a stake, a beam, in all of Palestine throughout history. There had never been a single solitary piece of evidence that anyone had been ever crucified. Now, you say, well, how can that be? Well, because Jerusalem, you understand, is the most fought after piece of real estate in the history of this people planet. One civilization after another civilization after another civilization. And true enough, we had a lot of written discourse from theologians and historians that there were many, many crucifixions. We understand that the Romans and all of their literature crucified literally tens of thousands of people on wooden crosses, on stakes, on beams. It was not simply an instrument of death. Death was not its purpose. If they were going to simply take someone's life, there are much easier ways to do that than the excruciating pain, the horrible cleanup, the disastrous spectacle of watching a man be laid out on a wooden biting beam as a Roman centurion would take a five-pound hammer and hammer steel spikes through tender skin into splintered wood. The average time for a crucifixion was somewhere between six and twelve hours after the cross had been lifted above the earth. No, 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 it was not an instrument for death. It was an instrument designed to instill fear in anyone who would in any way raise their voice against the Roman legions. They would say, there! Sometimes I think we need greater penalty to crime than just locking someone away in a steel cage throwing away the key and hoping that will in some way make them better they hung them there so that everyone passing by would see them writhing in their own pain. Everyone passing by would watch Roman centurions with those five-pound sledgehammers break their legs if they were not dying quickly enough. Instilling fear is always the purpose of your adversary. Even at the very resurrection of Jesus, the angels' first words were, Fear not. Because the human heart spins its entire existence palpitating with trepidation, worry, fear, anxiety. Men's hearts, your Bible says, in the hour that you and I are living, will fail them for fear. Not because of fatty food and cholesterol, but for fear. So I stand before you on this resurrection morning with an announcement to make for you. Fear not, fear not, fear not. I want to share a story with you from the pages of the book, Gone One Man, One Tomb, One Sunday. On December 7th, 1941, Uh, there was a captain in the United States Air Force. His name was Captain William Dice. And you know the story that on December 7th, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Army and their air force overwhelmed the American fleet at port in Honolulu, Hawaii. I've been there. I've seen the ship at the bottom of the ocean you've seen no doubt movie after movie after movie depicting that fateful day when the skies turned black and the fleet of America in the Pacific was destroyed to nothing more than a handful of little boats The blow you see by Imperial Japan had a purpose. It wasn't just, I mean, that fleet, what were they doing? I mean, they weren't, they mounted no opposition. Everyone was playing, you know, uh, uh, badminton and volleyball and going out with their girlfriends and boyfriends. And everyone was, of course, enjoying the beautiful sun of Hawaii and its white beaches. So why did Japan choose that plan of attack? For one reason, for one reason, they understood to win the war, they would have to take over the Philippine Islands. They knew that our closest naval base to the Philippine Islands of any strength was in Honolulu, Hawaii. So their attempt was to cut the legs out from under our resistance to them invading full force Manila and the Philippines and they're establishing their bases for the duration of World War II and global domination by the Japanese and the Nazis. Immediately after Pearl Harbor, in fact, 10 hours after the attack at Pearl Harbor, the Imperial Japanese Army invaded in full force the Philippine Islands. The Japanese estimated that most of the United States' force in that region had been destroyed, and so it was that by January the 2nd, the Japanese were in total domination of Manila, the capital city, and the Philippines, the great general Douglas MacArthur with his corncob pipe was forced to withdraw all the way to the southern tip of Australia. When he arrived in Australia, he uttered those famous words, I have gone through, but I shall return. Now see, I want to preach instead of tell a story. Somebody just shout those words, I shall return. I seem to hear another soldier I seem to hear him say fear not ye for this same Jesus that you see go away shall return in like manner as you have seen him go and make no mistake about it he may be gone from this crusty surface of this blue marble planet swirling and whirling through the universe that he himself created but there will come a time when he will stand on nothing because he needs nothing to stand upon there will come a time when a great shout will thunder through not only the ages but to every ear that has ever walked this planet during those ages the crack of his long whip will billow out like the crash of a thousand cannons he will slide that long lean Galilean leg over a steaming white stallion You will have to pause for a minute and turn around and say Parsley get on your own horse because he's coming back faster than the fleetest hoof ever struck a pavement, faster than a wheel ever turned upon an axle he's coming, the magnificent magnitude of his perfect person sweeping out from north to south and east to west and if you're blood bought and if you're blood washed and if you're born again and if you've given your life to Jesus you're about to leap like a heart over the crusty surface of this earth be gathered together in the air to meet the Lord and and so shall we ever be with the Lord. If you're ready, give him praise, give him glory. After another week of its assault by Japan, there was only a tiny remnant of United States forces along with about 20,000 Filipino forces 70,000 Americans, 20,000 or so Filipinos standing against the entire army of Japan and its invading force. They were forced to retreat to a place called Bataan. Uh, there, munitions had been cut off there was no food anything that could be used for food by the American and Filipino sources was used for food they ate their cavalry horses cavalry horse they ate dogs their main diet Freedom is not free, my dear brother and sister. Somebody paid a price somewhere for you to sit here and lift up holy hands without wrath or doubting. 70,000 and 20,000 starving. Their main diet was monkeys. That's all they could find to eat. They were out of ammunition, they were starving. They were being bombarded. They couldn't see the light for the darkness. The Americans fought and fought valiantly in an attempt to hold off the Japanese invasion until, you see, they were waiting. They weren't just fighting, but their commander had said, I've got to go, but remember this, I shall return somebody's fighting today somebody needs some spiritual food today somebody's in a dark place today somebody's being bombarded today somebody doesn't know how you're going to pay the bills today somebody's body has been invaded by cancer today but I've got good news for you he is not here he is risen as he said if he said it it will come to pass hath he not said it shall he not bring it to pass. He is not a man that he should lie, and he's coming. He's coming in the darkness of your midnight. He's coming in the pain and the agony of your suffering. He's coming. You haven't done anything big, bad, mean, and ugly enough, and there's not an overwhelming army of spiritual forces and darkness great enough to keep him from fulfilling his word. I need somebody to shout, he shall come. Before you die, he's coming. Before you throw in the towel, he's coming. Before you're overwhelmed, he's gonna teach you how to overcome. I need somebody to just lift up a little hand and say, thank you, Jesus. They were trying to hold off the Japanese until General Douglas MacArthur could make good on his promise and head back to the Philippines with reinforcements and with help. In those desperate and dark weeks, Captain Dias earned a nickname among his fighting brothers. Uh, They called him the one-man scourge. He would find pieces of downed aircraft and piece together a a little aircraft, a P-40. so weak he could barely move the controls he would fly out and he would attack the Japanese invading forces and as a result of his sacrifice thousands and thousands and thousands of lives were saved they were they were about to leave the Philippines, they, they were ordered to get out. So he took his airplane and he placed others on his airplane. And they said, but you're our captain, you're a leader. And he said, no, no, you go, I'll stay here. I will not leave a brother behind. And so he sent off his own airplane with others to safety. Finally, the very last cargo aircraft was about to leave. There were not enough aircraft to evacuate all of our forces out of that hellish hole. And so Dias said, I'm not going. If anyone stays, I'm going to stay with them. And off that aircraft went. The last person to get on the plane in his place ended up being the president who founded the Boy Scouts of the Philippines and he was the first Secretary General of the United Nations. But he have never done that had William Dias not said, I care more about you. I care more! about your life than mine. Days later, Dies became part of the largest surrender of American forces in the annals of war. It is recorded as the greatest defeat of the American fighting man and woman in recorded history. Tens upon tens of thousands of Filipinos and became prisoners along with the Americans of the Japanese Empire. What followed was one of the most infamous and shameful chapters in history. They had no food. They had no water. They had no ammunition. They were now the prisoners of the Imperial Army of Japan and they were commanded without water and without food to walk in 110 degree blazing heat and 90% humidity. They were commanded to walk 60 miles to a place called Bataan it was called the Bataan death march it began April 9th 1942. the lethal combination of starvation and heat and dehydration took its toll the Japanese began executing anyone who would stumble and fall they made sport of our starving troops anyone who stumbled or fell but Dias he made sure no one of his men were going to be bayoneted through the chest by a jeering Japanese soldier no sir over the next year Captain William Dias was moved from one prison camp to another finally In his third prison camp, he devised a plan of escape because what he knew is if he didn't find a way out of that hellhole, no one else would either. If he didn't conquer, The invading armies of death, of hell, of the grave, of poverty, of sickness, of sin, no one else would ever make it out. On April 4th, 1943, a roll call was taken in the evening. And it was revealed that Captain William Dias was absent. Not only was he absent, but the Japanese had devised a plan. They roped together 10 men groups and if one was discovered to have attempted or contemplated escape, the other nine were executed along with him. Do you see him now? Can you see him? It's Jesus. It's Jesus in the full light of a Passover moon. He's in a garden. The capillaries of his face are bursting. Blood is dripping from his bearded chin to pools upon the earth. He's in agony. In fact, the actual translation is, he was scared to death. Has Jesus ever been afraid? The answer is simple, have you? Your Bible says that he was tested in every way as a man, not humanity deified, not deity humanized, all God, but all man. Hear him. Father, if there's any other way to do this, I'd appreciate it. Father, I'm afraid. Do you know what he was afraid of? Do you think? It was the ringing of the hammer? Do you think it was the parting of sinew and flesh? Do you think it was the angry insects crawling in and out of his gaping wounds until it felt as though the very flame of hell had embedded itself deep within the flesh of the only begotten Son? Do you think it was the lictor's lash, the cat of nine tails tearing the skin of his back until it hung round his legs like ribbons? No! Here's what he feared. He feared in the garden that he would never make it to the rail. those tied and connected to him who were made in his image through death's narrow doorway and into the glorious pavilions of the grace, the freedom, the forgiveness of his father. He was afraid. What They gathered him up. They whipped and beat and prodded him through the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem. His face was so marred that his own mother who watched him take his first breath and soon would watch him take his last didn't even recognize her son. It's one thing. Captain William dies to die for his friends. But it would be something entirely different for Captain Dice to take his only son. And as your Bible says, God doubled up his fist and smote his own son. God! God who carpets the valley in green. God! Who feeds the baby raven. Psalm 118 said, turned his back and walked away from his son. Hear him! My Father, my God, why have you forsaken me? For God so loved the world. For God So, the descriptive word, He so loved the world. So meaning how, how did He love the world? So much that He gave. His son, not to just give his life in some discreet way, but there, the only piece of evidence that has ever been found. It was found in 1969 in an ossuary a young man aged to be alive at the time of Jesus his ankle bones with the nails still attached and olive wood driven through the bone, still preserved. Not crossed in front of him, but on either side, so that he could raise himself up to speak those words, Father. As his lungs filled with blood, forgive them. It staggers my mind. Forgive them. He's forgiving those who are spitting upon him. That he could speak at all is a miracle but what he spoke what he said what he communicated for give them he said to that thief beside him today you shall be with me in paradise because that thief who deserved to die, had uttered a simple prayer. Remember me when you come into your glory. Two words. Remember me from a thief, a dying thief, and a dying wheezing bleeding savior heard that prayer and answered it that same moment yes i forgive you yes today you shall be with me dies to call ten He took all ten. He refused to leave anybody behind. There's a story in your Bible. It's just a story. Jesus made it up. There are three stories, in fact. One of a son. One of a coin. The prodigal son. The lost coin. The lost sheep. I have it on my arm, you can't see it, but I have it on my arm, it's the number one and the scripture that says, would he not leave the 99 and look for the one lost sheep? You say, but I'm not connected to God, oh yes you are, you're made in his image. You're made in his likeness. That's why the adversary, the devil, doesn't like you because you're bound to him. Your image is his image. And he wants to keep you in prison. And he wanted that if one escaped, the others would die. So they unbolted him. They wrapped him in grave clothes, and they lay him in the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But like a lightning out of a dark-throated storm cloud, light appeared. He was gone. But he made a promise. I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> when the coin was lost, it was sought until it was found. When the sun was lost, He made it home to the Father and was received. When the sheep was lost, the shepherd put it on his shoulders and carried it home. Wouldn't you like to make it home? Here's what I know. Every single person in this room watching by whatever platform, every single person under the sound of my voice I must make this announcement to you whether you believe it or not is of no consequence nor significance you will live forever forever now I don't know if I'd clap or not because I haven't told you where. I'm from Eastern Kentucky, I talk slowly. Now that Bible, which is the only book that gives accurate directions to eternal destinations, only gives two options. One is a place called heaven Uh, That's where Jesus is now. That's a place where you and I will leap like a heart over the everlasting hills of God's glory. We won't suffer anymore. We won't sigh anymore. We won't cry anymore. The Bible says you'll wipe all the tears from our eyes. And we'll never die because we're created in the image of God. We'll never die. We'll never be at war will be in constant, continual peace. Why your Bible says that a lion will eat grass like a lamb and they'll lay down together. Oh, it's a wonderful place. What enough said about that. Jesus spoke only 18% as much about heaven as he did the other destination. I don't understand modern preachers If Jesus is our example, why don't we warn folks about the other half of the equation? Because the Bible says that hell is a place of the doomed and damned, helpless and hopeless hordes of humanity who have rejected the gospel of the cross and the resurrection one time too many. Your Bible says, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation, for in that day you will be cut off and that without a remedy do you understand there are people walking the earth today with absolutely no hope of ever going to heaven now that's not you because if it were you you wouldn't have lived 24 hours from the time you committed that sin so what that means is there's hope for you what that means is the cross still bleeds for you What that means is the king still intercedes for you. What that means is God still has the power to make you a new creature so that today you can be with him in paradise. Hell, a place where men gnaw their tongues for pain. Hell, a place where humans never die. And the Bible says God has to give you a new body that can handle the everlasting burning. We don't look for death, but death looks for us. If it found Jesus, it'll find you. There's a stubborn statistic. The death rate among human persons remains stubbornly at 100%. And you're not getting out of here alive hell is a place where your nerves become strings upon which satan will play the diabolical tune of hell's unalterable lament a place where your veins become nothing more than highways for the hot feet of pain the number one statement in hell I never intended to be here I shared a little something Friday night and some folks asked me to share it again today. So in closing, I'll share it. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. This is a watch. It's a beautiful watch. It's not a Timex. My wife, no, this one the elders of this great church bought me. Actually, this was the second one because I gave the first one away to Jason Crabb, gospel singer. He wore it to receive two Grammys. So the elders knew I gave that one away and got me another one. Here's what this watch tells me. It tells me that somewhere, although I've never seen them, I don't know them. I don't know where they are. I don't know anything about them. All I know is that somewhere there's a watchmaker. I know that if it gets broken, stops working for some reason, I know that I can't fix it. Not even with my big hammer. I can't fix it. But I know this. If there's a watchmaker and I can find him, no matter what's wrong with my watch, he made it, he can fix it. Now look at your neighbor. Somewhere there must be a neighbor maker. Somewhere, God, the eternal creator, must exist and I feel like there are a whole lot of broken watches here today. Out of time, out of sync, but I know the watchmaker. He gave his life to fix everything that's wrong with you. Your problem is you've been trying to fix you. Now, how's that working out? The harder you go, the behinder you get. No one wants to go to hell. Everyone wants to go to heaven, and make no mistake about it, God sends no one to hell. He allowed his son to go there so that he would cause you To never have to know what hell looks like. Today, he wants to give you a relationship with you. Today. Today, he wants to come into your heart. He wants to forgive your sins, which are nothing more than things that have separated you from him. Today. On this resurrection morning, God wants to give you a brand new life. He's about to do it. I promise you he will, because he said, if you'll ask, I'll do it. Hey, thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, I wanna invite you to tell someone in your life about the podcast. Hope you'll do it today. Head on over to iTunes and leave a review. Share it on your social networks for me. Really helps me get the word out. I'd love for you to connect with me on Facebook,